Welcome to Misunderstood, a podcast dedicated to better understanding MS and learning to live well with MS. I'm your host, Katie Sloan. Our usual reminders as we begin, I'm not an expert, just a person like you, living with MS and trying to make the best of it. Misunderstood is based on my personal experience, what I've learned from my doctors, other care providers, and my own solutions-oriented research and pattern-finding obsession. While the majority of the information I share has been vetted by doctors, I am not a doctor. My intention is that you use the information shared here as a springboard for discussion between you and your doctor regarding your future care options. And lastly, MS impacts each of us uniquely. I hope to shine a light on a wide range of approaches and strategies for living better with MS, but what you choose to do with that information is always your choice. And what works for one may not work for all. For the past two episodes, we've taken a deep dive into the topic of boundaries, including but not limited to learning to examine our relationships to identify boundary opportunities, identifying our wills and will nots, and learning to construct and maintain healthy boundaries. And as we learned, for many of us, our earliest relationship experiences in life were positive enough for us to develop a trusting attitude when it comes to interacting with others. In these relationships, we learned to establish healthy boundaries, often without even being aware we were doing it. For some of us, however, and especially those of us who experienced more challenges in childhood, the line can get so blurred that over time we become unsure of our boundaries and even awareness of when they are being crossed. Or we're not sure exactly where to draw the line with boundary violators. We may, therefore, have a great deal of difficulty with trust as a result of instability, inconsistency, invasion of boundaries, and even actual threat of harm or alienation at some point in our lives. We may be more vulnerable or more open to boundary violations as a result. This can be exacerbated when you add entitlement or narcissistic tendencies into the mix. Many in this situation may experience feelings of guilt or shame about making someone angry or unhappy if we don't agree or allow behavior to continue that is not in alignment with our personal boundaries. And that's what this week's episode is all about as we focus on ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences, and Resiliency. Before I really get into this topic, I want to reiterate how important it is to have a strong support network why the flock values one another so much, and why we all need a fellow sunflower from time to time to help us find the light in times of darkness. Sometimes the reflective work that needs to be done on a healing journey can illuminate some very important previously hidden messages. Some of them can be quite painful, and this has definitely been true for me, And so it's with a lot of emotions, ranging from excitement to reluctance, that I share this episode's topic with you. Excitement because I believe this holds perhaps the most important key to better health for us, and it can help clarify and answer a bunch of questions we never even knew we had. And reluctance, because I understand how heavy the process can be of slogging through our past to find answers and develop healthier roadmaps to help us navigate the path ahead in a different way. So, before you keep listening, take a moment to think, who do I have in my life to talk with about this? Do I have a therapist? If not, should I? Do I have a close friend whom I can trust to both hold a mirror and shine a light to help me reflect and plan a path forward? Do I have a journal available and have ready in my mind the tools we've discussed as far as ways to rewrite pathways in our brains or work through processing grief? Maybe you want to even listen to this episode with someone supportive. Once you have a plan in place for your support, continue listening and I do hope you enjoy the ride. My gratitude today is for my origin family. I love my family very much, and we were and still are a very unique family in that we've done so many super cool things together over the years. Growing up, we spent a lot of time together in nature, which had a huge positive impact on me. 
We spent a minimum of two weeks together each summer camping at the lake with dear family friends, windsurfing, sailing, water skiing, hiking, kayaking, fishing. It was glorious and a great way to unwind and rejuvenate before the next school year. We also have shared ownership of a multi-generational family ranch in the Sierra foothills where we've spent a lot of time together. It's an incredibly beautiful, serene, and rustic place, extremely private with an abundance of lakes, trails, and adventure. In addition, we all have an affinity for collecting rocks and together have mined for sapphires, garnets, gold, tourmaline, rhodonite, and other rocks, gems, and minerals together. All of us have extensive rock collections in our gardens and we enjoy lapidary together, which is the art of cutting and grinding rocks into shapes to make jewelry, magnets, and other treasures. We also played a lot of sports together. From an early age, my parents coached my soccer teams and as a young adult, we played on volleyball and co-ed soccer teams together. We are a musical family. My folks had a band when I was growing up, so music was always a big part of our lives. And we often played music together for church and also professionally for parties, weddings, and other events. We also spent a lot of time taking care of a lot of great pets. From injured pigeons we rescued and healed off the streets, to our first golden retriever, Mandy, our plethora of chickens, fresh eggs, several bunnies, tarantulas, lizards, snakes, and even crayfish. And I learned a lot of important skills through reshingling the house, building wooden kayaks and other woodworking projects, learning to maintain a vehicle, and the joys of physical labor working in the garden. Although I must say, I enjoy these things much more as an adult at my own home. I am so grateful for all that we did together and what we collectively valued because I grew up being an outdoor enthusiast and with many diverse skills, interests, and hobbies which has really helped me, especially over the years as I age, and particularly since my MS diagnosis, as the list slowly lengthens of things I can no longer safely do. I am grateful that I have so many other interests that can easily fill my time and continue to bring me joy and purpose. And this can-do attitude has also helped me persevere through challenges and develop strong resiliency, which you'll learn in this episode, really matters. So thank you to my parents and awesome older brother for being such a wonderfully adventurous family who did a lot together. When I replay all the fun we've had together over the years in my mind, it always brings a warm smile to my face. Thank you. As we prepare to dive into ACEs, there are three things to keep top of mind, and I will share more of my personal story here where it's pertinent. One, I think it's very important to clarify that what's important for us and our healing journey is how we remember experiencing a particular time in our lives, even if others may remember things differently from their perspective. Even a family going through an event together. If there are four of us, for example, all four of us will have a slightly different account. This reminds me of an exercise I used to do with my elementary school students on the importance of using primary sources when studying history. And yet, even when we use primary sources in an attempt to get the real or accurate account of events, it still matters who the storyteller is and what their unique viewpoint was. The exercise I used to do with students involved having us all look out the classroom window and record what we saw. We typically did this for about five minutes, and afterwards we shared our accounts. Some people, from unique viewpoints, saw different things. Others who were right next to each other noticed different things. So all this is to say that one person's experience is no more valid or invalid than anyone else's in a family unit or group. But it is how each individual processed the experience that matters for us in our health. And the good news is, remember, once we better understand our past and the existing pathways in our brains that developed as a result, we do have the power to change them. And that, my friends, is a beautiful thing that I want you to hold on to throughout this episode. It may get intense for you at times. If you commit to listening, please listen to the entire episode. 
The second thing I believe it's important to acknowledge is that I never thought that anything I experienced as a child would be classified as actual trauma. There are a handful of exceptions. One of my earliest memories is being at a Randy Stonehill concert with my parents with an incredibly painful earache. It was excruciating, and it's actually amazing to me that I love music and concerts so much given the severity of the pain I still feel when I recall that memory and the compassion I have for my childhood self for enduring the pain. I also had a scary experience when I was eight or nine when my grandfather, who I was admittedly splashing in the pool after he asked me not to, as kids do, held me underwater in retaliation, and I ran out of oxygen and took in several big gulps of water. It was terrifying. That experience caused me to struggle with swimming afterwards, as being in the water ever since has often caused me to become asthmatic. Kind of problematic for someone on a swim team, hmm? Based on research, it's likely linked to how I developed asthmatic symptoms when I get sick, which has often led to bronchitis and sometimes pneumonia throughout my life. Getting stuck under a dock at a lake while camping with a friend's family a few years later was also extremely unpleasant. And in addition, I had a major ski accident at age 17 that I now realize changed a bunch of things for me moving forward in my life. We'll look at concussion data and the links to autoimmune diseases in another episode, but for now, just know there are strong linkages. But in full transparency, after learning about ACEs and discussing it with a variety of therapists and caregivers, I now realize there were some other aspects of my life, all in the emotional realm, that are classified as trauma. And we'll learn a little later in the episode, even if they wouldn't count as an official point on the ACEs scale. Here are a few noteworthy examples. They're hard for me to share, but in full transparency, I think it's important. I do remember a lot of rules in a highly restrictive home. Compliance was definitely heavily valued, and there were more serious consequences than my peers experienced for not adhering to the rules. I do need to mention here that there was a lot of entitlement and excessive wealth in the town where I grew up, although we lived in the south part of town, which was much more middle class. So now I'm able to see a lot of benefits of this, but at the time I developed a bit of what is called a poverty mindset. In our household, I do also recall a lot of yelling, not always directed at me, although based on what I've learned, I'm no longer certain that matters. I also experienced being regularly berated and teased for being overweight, both at home and at elementary school being consistently sleep-deprived. Definitely my fault for staying up late reading at night, which was my happy place. But that combined with the lengthy morning chore list that had to be completed very early did not serve me well. There were definitely no leisurely Saturday morning cartoons for this girl. And it was not until college that I saw shows like The Brady Bunch, which were pretty popular back in the day. While it makes me sad to say... I generally felt like I was a disappointment and never good enough. I never learned truly to sleep solidly or to sleep in until I went away to college where my roommates as a result affectionately appointed me the nickname Naps and since I finally had the opportunity to sleep when I needed to. Related to the never feeling good enough, I now understand it may have been related to the fact that I was a rainbow baby, which is a baby born after a miscarriage, and I've always been acutely aware that my parents only intended to have two children, so I almost didn't exist, and only existed because another life didn't, which is a hard responsibility to live with and magnifies my failures. We also didn't talk openly about hard things like loss or sadness. And I believe now, based on what I've learned, that this is all a big part of why I am such a highly emotional person. And I do love being this way. I also learned to keep the peace at all costs. So I became a keen observer of human behavior and was always on high alert. This has helped me so much in my career as a teacher coach to see opportunities in the classroom. And it also helped me in other aspects of my life, in building strong relationships, even across lines of difference. But what I realize now is that kowtowing to others in my origin family to elevate their needs over mine 
and as a result, becoming an extreme people pleaser to avoid painful confrontation, meant too often sacrificing what I wanted or needed, simply to keep others happy and to keep the peace. And when we deny ourselves of our intended and desired path, we are not being true to ourselves. And it makes sense to me now how our body can revolt. So, all this to say, I honestly believe everyone in my origin family truly tried their best, including me. We did a lot of things really well. And now, with hindsight being 2020, there were some things that I really wish we had all known more about, so we all could have done even better together. I'm grateful we are all still close and have the opportunity to choose to be more supportive, loving, and open in our interactions with one another as adults moving forward. I have always craved this, longed for it, worked hard for it, and hoped for it, and yet didn't realize until recently what Dr. Cloud says best. Deferred hope makes the heart sick. Third, along those lines, if you haven't researched patterns of genetic trauma and how trauma is transferred through our genetic code generation after generation, the science is nothing less than fascinating and in all honesty can be quite depressing. One tool I learned earlier this year in a course I took from the Center for Mind-Body Medicine has been extremely helpful in better understanding my family history when it comes to trauma. In this program, we created a genogram. It's basically a diagram of a family tree, but looking at specific aspects of humanity. Here's a little bit of the lessons, relevant rationale from the Center of Mind-Body Medicine, and I quote, because so much of who we are comes from what we observed or were taught as a child, creating and examining a genogram provides you with the opportunity to identify your vulnerabilities and draw on your strengths to make new and different life choices moving forward. We each come from somewhere and our personal identity is linked to the origin family. You can use the genogram to tell the story of your life through the lens of your origin family and to deepen your awareness of how your story has shaped who you are today. From this vantage point, you can see both the richness of your family heritage and the limiting patterns you may no longer want to perpetuate in your life." End quote. The genogram largely looks like a family tree. However, there are specific aspects that are added where appropriate. For example, the genogram key includes delineation of close relationships as well as distant, cut off, or conflicted relationships. It also contains hardships like divorce, death, miscarriage, stillbirth, and spontaneous or induced abortion. It includes adoptions as well as mental health issues such as suicidal tendencies, depression, alcoholism, estrangement, or developmental challenges. Narcissistic and codependent behaviors are included as are other sources of trauma and even extreme religious beliefs are noted. After creating the genogram, we were asked some reflection questions. What are the challenges I face in my life and what are my strengths? Have other members of your family experienced the same challenges? How have they dealt with them, or have they? Are there patterns, connections, or conflicts across the generations who have shared who you are today? Are there parts of you that once served a purpose, but that now are unhelpful, and that you no longer need or wish to transform? In looking at your genogram mindfully and with compassion for yourself and others, do you see possible solutions to a current challenge that you are navigating? If you are a parent, what does this mean for you in terms of reflection and action towards breaking the cycle of trauma so your children and grandchildren and beyond aren't as negatively impacted by past generational trauma? especially knowing that trauma is compounded with each new generation. Doing this project, and especially the color coding of the key on the genogram, was incredibly enlightening. Being able to see the patterns of trauma throughout the generations jump out at me from the paper helped me to better understand everything. And now that I better understand everything, I have the choice 
and dare I say, responsibility to move forward in my life in a different way. You've likely heard Albert Einstein's take on insanity, which is as follows. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. This is critical because of how trauma flows down the family tree, only becoming more torrential with each generation. So if I, or you, want to break these cycles and be able to leave some behaviors and mindsets behind, I need to operate differently. It's very important to me that listeners know that I harbored no ill will toward anyone in my past. I love who I am, and everything I have experienced is collectively responsible for who I am today. I believe everyone tries their best and has the best intentions. I also understand that intent is very different than impact. And this is why having a better understanding of our past, including processing our ACEs, is an important part of boundary work and the overall healing process in our quest for living well with MS. So with all those heavy prerequisite comments complete, let's look at ACEs, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Scale. This is an assessment that I came across almost two years ago now, and it completely blew my mind. I cannot believe it took me so long to even hear about it. We know that traumatic experiences can trigger both mental and physical health issues in adulthood. For example, a car accident or violent attack may lead to depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, in addition to physical injuries. But what about emotional trauma in childhood? ACEs are negative experiences that occur during the first 18 years of life. They can include various events like receiving or witnessing abuse, neglect, and various kinds of dysfunction within the home. An early ACEs study published by Kaiser 20 years ago found that as the number of ACEs in a child's life increases, so does the likelihood of multiple risk factors for several of the leading causes of death in adults, such as heart disease, cancer, chronic lung disease, and liver disease. Since that study, more issues like autoimmune disorders have been added to the list. We'll look at that in a bit after we look at what the ACEs scale is. There are 10 types of childhood trauma measured in the ACE study. Five are personal, physical abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, physical neglect, and emotional neglect. Five are related to other family members, like a parent who's an alcoholic, a mother who's a victim of domestic violence, a family member in jail, a family member diagnosed with a mental illness, and the disappearance of a parent through divorce, death, or abandonment. Each type of trauma counts as one point, so a person who's been physically abused with one alcoholic parent and a mother who was beaten up has, for example, an ACE score of three. There are, of course, many other types of childhood trauma. Racism, bullying, watching a sibling being abused, losing a caregiver like a parent, grandparent, etc., homelessness, surviving and recovering from a severe accident, witnessing a father being abused by a mother, witnessing a grandmother abusing a father, or a father abusing a grandmother, involvement with the foster care system or the juvenile justice system. The list sadly goes on. The ACE study included only those 10 childhood traumas because those were determined at the time as the most common traumas that were also well-studied individually in the research literature. The most important thing to remember is that the ACE score is meant as a guideline. So, if we experienced other types of toxic stress over months or years, then those would likely increase our risk of health consequences as well. Let's look at the actual ACEs questionnaire, which is widely available online should you choose to check it out, but I will read through it here as well and post it on our Patreon page. It's important to know that your ACEs score never changes, as it's a set number based on life experiences prior to 18 years of age. Remember, to find your ACE score, answer the following 10 questions, giving yourself one point for each yes. I'll read the questions. Keep tally of your score. Oh, 
And if something kind of applies, you don't count it on your official ACES score. But as you'll see, those partial points do add up in our bodies and minds. Without further ado, here are the questions. While you were growing up, during your first 18 years of life, one, did a parent or other adult in the household often swear at you, insult you, put you down, or humiliate you, or act in a way that made you afraid you might be physically hurt? Number two, did a parent or other adult in the household often push, grab, slap, or throw something at you, or ever hit you so hard that you had marks or were injured? Number three, did an adult or other person at least five years older than you ever touch or fondle you or have you touch their body in a sexual way? Number four, did you often feel that no one in your family loved you or thought you were important or special? Or your family didn't look out for each other, feel close to each other, or support each other? Number five, did you often feel that you didn't have enough to eat, had to wear dirty clothes, or had no one to protect you? Or your parents were too drunk or high to take care of you or take you to the doctor if you needed it? Number six, were your parents ever separated or divorced? Number seven, was your mother or stepmother often pushed, grabbed, slapped, or had something thrown at her? Or sometimes or often kicked, bitten, hit with a fist, or hit with something hard? or repeatedly hit over at least a few minutes or threatened with a gun or knife? Number eight, did you live with anyone who was a problem drinker or alcoholic or who used street drugs? Number nine, was a household member depressed or mentally ill or did a household member attempt suicide? Number 10, did a household member go to prison? Your ACEs score is the number of questions you answered yes to. I am personally very grateful that my ACEs score is very low, but it's unfortunately not zero. So let's look how on earth our scores on the scale matter, especially when looking at MS by looking at some of the research data. ACEs exert a psychological and physiological toll that increases risk of chronic conditions, poorer social functioning, and cognitive impairment in adulthood. Researchers concluded that cumulative stress due to adverse childhood experiences and decreased psychological resilience may increase the likelihood of earlier MS onset and predict poorer premorbid cognitive functioning in adulthood. Childhood traumatic stress increased the likelihood of hospitalization with a diagnosed autoimmune disease decades into adulthood. And these findings are consistent with more recent biological studies on the impact of early life stress on subsequent inflammatory responses. Even though the ACEs assessment only touches on a limited array of traumatic experiences, there is a large and growing body of evidence that builds on ACEs findings. It shows that all kinds of adversity affect risk for disease. So risk for disease is not limited to the 10 ACEs. Adverse experiences might also include neglect or abuse from someone other than a parent, the death of a parent or sibling or grandparent, systemic oppression like racism, poverty, and living with a chronic or debilitating illness as a child, growing up with a parent or other household member with a serious physical illness, being in a car accident, being bullied, chronically put down or humiliated, born prematurely, as well as difficult relationships with our parents and other types of adversity we frequently dismiss because they are sadly so common. What that means is that a lot of us have experienced a large amount of trauma and that matters for our health. The initial and subsequent studies found that ACEs increase risk for autoimmune diseases such as MS, type 1 diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and more, like type 2 diabetes, obesity, asthma, chronic obstructive lung disease, cancer, and other chronic physical and mental illnesses. 
For children, the stress of experiencing trauma causes very similar changes to those seen in PTSD. Trauma can switch the body's stress response system into high gear for the rest of the child's life. So PTSD is a good example of this theory in action. Common causes for PTSD are often some of the same events recognized in the ACE questionnaire. Abuse, neglect, accidents, or other disasters, war, and more. Areas of the brain change as a result of these experiences, both in structure and in function. The areas of the brain most impacted are the areas that manage our memories, emotions, stress, and fear. And when they malfunction, this increases the occurrence of flashbacks and hypervigilance, putting our brains on high alert to sense for danger. In turn, the increased inflammation from the heightened stress responses may cause or trigger autoimmune diseases and other health conditions. From a behavioral standpoint, children, teens, and adults who have experienced physical and psychological trauma may also be more likely to adopt unhealthy coping mechanisms, such as smoking, substance abuse, overeating, and hypersexuality. These behaviors, in addition to a heightened inflammatory response, can put them at a higher risk for developing a variety of conditions. While most of the older research has focused on physical trauma and chronic health conditions, more and more newer studies are exploring the connection between psychological stress as a predicting factor for chronic illness later in life. There are definitive links between PTSD and autoimmunity. Other conditions connected to ACEs include heart disease, headaches, and migraines, lung cancer, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, liver disease, depression, anxiety, obesity, and even sleep disturbances. And many people with high ACEs scores as they age often struggle with hypervigilance, being constantly overly alert to their surroundings, so they always know where the exits are. I'll insert a personal note here. I find this so interesting as I've always heavily preferred to sitting with my back to the wall facing an exit so I can see my surroundings. I also experience a strong startle response when surprised, touched without warning, or with loud noises. We'll talk about that startle response that is so common for folks with MS and other autoimmune diseases in another episode. And some people who score very high in ACEs even experience flashbacks. Triggers vary, so it can be difficult to anticipate when it will occur, and even in the moment, it may be difficult for someone to accurately evaluate the situation to recognize that there is no real imminent threat of harm. The key point about disease is that the ACEs studies show that childhood trauma is a critical and prominent factor affecting risk for chronic diseases of all kinds. This is important to know not only because chronic disease is such a painful, challenging, costly, and life-altering experience, but also because chronic illness accounts for 7 out of the top 10 causes of death in the U.S., according to the CDC. Furthermore, 50% of adults in the U.S. suffer from chronic illness. 25% of adults have two or more chronic health conditions. Nearly 10% of children, and this number is rising, suffer with chronic disease. Risk for chronic illness is especially high when a person has experienced four or more ACEs. With a score of four or more, the risk doubles for diabetes, cancer, and heart disease, and quadruples for chronic lung disease. But even an ACE score of two is significant, where the risk for the 80 or more types of autoimmune diseases increase as the ACE scores rise. For every increase in the ACE score of one point, Risk for developing an autoimmune disease, such as type 1 diabetes, lupus, MS, rheumatoid arthritis, and many others, goes up by 20%. An ACE score of only 2, which can happen if your parents divorced and one of your parents had to cope with a common mental illness such as anxiety or depression, increases the chances of being hospitalized for an autoimmune disease at some point by 70-80%. to 80%. 
Researchers also found that childhood stressful events, even those too minor to be included on the ACEs assessment, may increase autoimmune diseases independently, as well as amplify the effect of other environmental factors, such as infections. So think of how knowing that increases the numbers just shared. A body caught in a constant state of survival is less healthy, that's for sure. There's a lot more data about how trauma impacts cortisol, adrenals, changes in blood sugar, insulin levels, and our pituitary gland function. I may share more of that in a future episode, as it's nothing less than fascinating. But what's most important for us today, however, is to know that trauma affects both physical and emotional health because it alters the nervous system, the immune system, and cell danger response, gene function, and beyond. Better understanding these mechanisms and the science of trauma offers hope for people living with chronic illness. This is because healing the effects of trauma is possible, even if the events happened far in the past. And because addressing the effects of trauma also helps heal symptoms of chronic disease. I would be remiss if I didn't mention here that there is a whole slew of studies looking specifically at what is, to me, an undeniable connection between ACEs. And I'll include other forms of childhood trauma that do not officially count on the ACEs assessment because by now we understand those accumulate and impact us too. And the fact that two-thirds of people with MS are women. There are numerous studies about the relationship between being female, ACEs, autoimmune diseases, and depression. In these studies, they look at the unique ways that the female brain and immune system respond to environmental influences, including ACEs, and how in turn this unique female brain immune response contributes to girls being several times more likely to later develop these conditions. Several studies explain this by looking at the data that shows females grow up with higher rates of ACEs, which is then intensified by social media and media in general that show unrealistic images and expectations that we all strive to reach, even though we know they are very rarely attainable. Especially when we see even the most glamorous and quote-unquote perfect women being airbrushed to look even better. In addition, females experience sexual harassment and sexism not only in the workplace, but in almost every aspect of life at much higher rates than men. Over time, this takes a toll on our bodies, especially our immune systems and brains. We talked earlier about hypervigilance, and when our bodies are in a constant state of hypervigilance, we experience toxic stress. Toxic childhood stress begins to cause changes in the architecture of our developing brains, and it engenders profound epigenetic changes in the genes that oversee the stress response. In fact, Yale researchers recently found that children who'd faced chronic, unpredictable toxic stress demonstrate changes across the genome in genes that oversee the stress response. These changes reset the stress response to high for life. For each category of ACEs a girl faces, her chance of developing a serious autoimmune disease in adulthood increases by 20%. For instance, a girl who faces three categories of adverse childhood experiences has a 60% greater chance of developing an autoimmune disease so serious she requires hospitalization as an adult woman, as compared to someone who grows up without toxic stress. For every category of ACEs a man has faced, his chances of being hospitalized with an autoimmune disease increases by about 10%, still a significant and disturbing correlation, and one we also need to pay attention to. We also know that females face more ACEs growing up in general. In fact, females are 50% more likely to experience five or more categories of childhood adversity. We also know that females who experience two or more categories of childhood adversity are twice as likely as males who have also experienced two or more types of childhood adversity to develop autoimmune disease in adulthood. Part of this is physiological. Women are generally smaller than men, so our hearts and lungs are smaller. Does this matter? 
Turns out, some people think it does. These organs still need to be able to do everything the larger male organs do. Pump oxygen, circulate blood, run fast, think fast, be awake 16 or 17 hours a day. And women who bear children need to produce the extra energy to carry a child to term. Luckily, women have higher baseline levels of the hormone estrogen, which is a hormone that acts as a messenger that carries important information between different groups of cells in our bodies. When we're stressed or get sick, estrogen helps us have more robust immune system, and that's also partially because of glucocorticoids, which are hormones produced by the adrenal gland that help regulate inflammation. Those hormones are what help protect pregnant women to protect the fetus during development. So all that makes it sound pretty darn cool to be female. And it is, but let's look at what happens when this heightened female immune response sets out to fight off something like a virus or bacteria. Women produce more antibodies, or the fighter immune cells, which can be really good but can also be problematic because we also produce more autoantibodies, which one researcher defined as rogue fighter immune cells that can more easily attack the body's own tissue or organs not unlike what we refer to in warfare as friendly fire. And this, my friends, is another way of defining autoimmunity. So, when females, especially from a very young age, as they are continuing to develop, experience toxic levels of stress, our stress response is dysregulated, which leads to more inflammation. You'll recall, in the face of threats that alert the immune system, which includes infections, physical injury, and social threats and stressors, females also make more antibodies and more rogue autoantibodies. So again, because we have so much more estrogen, this means that over time, a woman's immune system is a lot more likely to begin to attack her own body. A heightened inflammatory stress response also affects the female brain differently, and our brains are more vulnerable when faced with adversity. On brain scans, female brains have fewer neural connections between the prefrontal cortex, which is the decision-making center of the brain, and the hippocampus, an area of the brain that helps us to make sense of our emotions and experiences. And females who grow up with high levels of toxic stress from ACEs or other traumatic experiences experience another type of neural connectivity dysfunction that in synaptic connections between an area of the brain known as the amygdala, which is the fear and alert center of the brain, and the prefrontal cortex are weakened. What this means is growing up in a chronic state of hypervigilance we experience ongoing fight or flight, which to our brain feels like everything is an emergency. So, know a woman you think overreacts to something? I'm asking our listeners to extend a little grace and understanding here. Because of the female brain and hormonal reactions to prolonged toxic stress, we may not see or experience things like men might. Females are much more likely to suffer from anxiety and depression than males. This is not to say that men do not experience this at all. In fact, about 30% of men with an ACEs score of 4 or more later develop chronic depression. Just keep in mind, for women, that rate jumps to nearly 60%. So all of this data boils down to the fact that growing up experiencing a high level of adversity is not good for any of us regardless of gender, and will likely lead to neuroinflammatory diseases like depression and anxiety, as well as autoimmune diseases. Autoimmune diseases in general, and similarly MS in particular, strike women at three times the rate of men. For some autoimmune diseases, that ratio is even higher. The ratio of females to males that have Hashimoto's thyroid disease is 10 to 1 and for lupus, 9 to 1. Autoimmune diseases are one of the top 10 leading causes of death in women under the age of 65. Over 50 million Americans have an autoimmune disease, and three-quarters of these are women. 
The last part of these gender-specific studies I researched that I want to mention is an explanation for why so many of us have such long, drawn-out diagnosis processes. And while the studies focused on females, keep in mind that many men with MS have experienced similar. It just impacts women at a higher rate because of our unique physiology. So men, just because the research from this next section focuses on women, know that I believe this strongly relates to you as well, especially because many of the awesome men with MS that I have become fortunate enough to meet and become close friends with have shared similar personal experiences with me. As many of us who have experienced adverse experiences in childhood, as well as chronic stress, know personally, it can take many years and sometimes even decades for toxic childhood stress to translate into symptoms, much less a visible and diagnosable disease. It's not unusual to take up to 30 years or longer for the inflammation caused by that chronic adversity to progress into identifiable disease symptoms. With so much time between that stressed little child and the ill adult we have become, it's no wonder our doctors struggle with diagnosing us, and the root causes are often even invisible to us because there are so many dots to connect. Did you know that the average female sees five doctors over a period of almost five years before receiving a proper diagnosis? And many are discarded and labeled as chronic complainers, even told that the problem is all in their heads. Sometimes as a result, we'll avoid going to another doctor until our symptoms worsen beyond a manageable level. And then we often finally get our diagnosis. Imagine if doctors could diagnose earlier, better understand the linkage to adverse childhood experiences and ongoing toxic stress, and provide earlier support and intervention. It's fascinating to me to think about how that alone could help slow progression and keep symptoms manageable for a lifetime, rather than allowing them to continue to build and result in further pain and loss of ability over time. Despite gaps in the criteria used to measure ACEs, which we'll get into momentarily, they represent a significant public health issue. The good news is that by and large, ACEs are mostly preventable. Just as building safe and supportive environments for children is important for preventing ACEs, tackling issues of access for both physical and mental health care is crucial for addressing them. The biggest change that needs to happen? Patients and providers must take traumatic experiences in childhood more seriously. Once we do that, we'll be able to understand the link between illness and trauma better and perhaps prevent health issues for our children in the future. Here's even better news. As it becomes more well-known, some people are actually starting to do something about it, which gives me hope for us all and for future generations, now that we're beginning to understand how generational trauma impacts our children. Just last year, a high school acquaintance of mine, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, was named as California's first Surgeon General. She is nothing less than a badass superhero in my mind for all of the important work she is doing. She's authored a book about ACEs called The Deepest Well, Healing the Long-Term Effects of Childhood Adversity. And she has a TED Talk called How Childhood Trauma Affects Health Across a Lifetime that's been viewed over 5 million times. Dr. Burke Harris has helped educate others about ACEs through her founding of the San Francisco-based clinic, Center for Youth Wellness. She's currently working to implement ACEs early intervention and support in preschools across the state. Burke Harris created a screening tool for pediatricians to detect ACEs, helping them interpret the results and directing children and caregivers to appropriate treatment services. I am hopeful that one day this work will expand to offer a high school course where students can reflect on their childhood earlier and hopefully learn tools to prevent developing chronic illness over time. I'm thrilled to see what the future holds for Dr. Burke Harris. I certainly know the world is and will be a much better place because of her efforts. 
Thank you, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris. So now that we know how seriously ACEs and other traumatic and or toxic experiences impact our lives, I want to acknowledge that there is one big issue with ACEs in my opinion, which is shared by many experts in the field. The ACE test doesn't place negative childhood experiences in context with positive ones. And it's important to note here that despite exposure to trauma, research has shown that access to supportive social relationships and communities, as well as our resiliency score, can have a lasting positive impact on mental and physical health. So let's take a moment to look at resiliency and how it may impact those of us whom have experienced ACEs in a positive way. Now, with the resiliency scale itself, of which there are several variations rather than one universally used tool, there's not as much data, nor is there ample data on how differences in the two, ACEs and resiliency, may impact us differently. But what is known is that studies show that having no ACEs and low resilience is actually worse than high ACEs and high resilience. One study I will mention here before we look at the resiliency scale shows that females with no ACEs but with low resilience have much higher rates of depression than those with high ACEs and high resilience. So experts believe that developing resiliency is key in living a healthy life. For this questionnaire, it will help you to identify how many of what are considered the 14 protective factors you may have had as a child. The scale used for this questionnaire is a little different than for ACEs. So if you are keeping track, you may wanna write this down. For each question, your answer choices range from definitely true, probably true, not sure, probably not true, and definitely not true. Number one on the resilience questionnaire. I believe that my mother loved me when I was little. Number two, I believe my father loved me when I was little. Number three, when I was little, other people helped my mother and father take care of me and they seemed to love me. Number four, I've heard that when I was an infant, someone in my family enjoyed playing with me and I enjoyed it too. Number five, when I was a child, there were relatives in my family who made me feel better if I was sad or worried. Number six, when I was a child, neighbors or my friend's parents seemed to like me. Number seven, when I was a child, teachers, coaches, youth leaders, or ministers were there to help me. Number eight, someone in my family cared about how I was doing in school. Number nine, my family, neighbors, and friends talked often about making our lives better. Number 10, we had rules in our house and were expected to keep them. Number 11, when I felt really bad, I could almost always find someone I trusted to talk to. Number 12, as a youth, people noticed that I was capable and could get things done. Number 13, I was independent and a go-getter. And number 14, I believed that life is what you make it. How many of these protective factors were present in your childhood? How many are still present in your current phase of life? What other reflections might you have? From my perspective, I'm grateful that my resilience score is high, and it definitely makes me appreciate the strong relationships I had with my parents, brother, and especially my grandmother, with whom I was very close with. She lived until age 99, so she was a huge part of my support network until she passed three years prior to my MS diagnosis. The resilience test also made me appreciate my family friends, our strong cul-de-sac neighborhood, a few key teachers throughout the years, my sports coaches, and quite notably, Father Jean Boyle at the Stanford Newman Center and St. Anne's Church, who was an incredible man and taught me early about fighting for what's right. Briefly, he is most remembered for his lifelong fight for social justice throughout California. He was a close friend of labor leader Cesar Chavez, 
And is the priest pictured in the iconic 1968 photo giving communion to Chavez on the day he ended a 25-day fast he had launched to show farm workers they could fight for their rights without using violence? No priest fought more ferociously and effectively against injustice than Father Boyle. He was arrested numerous times. He was truly a role model for us all, and I believe an important reason why I dedicated so much of my life toward fighting for equity in education. And now, while I continue to do some coaching with educational leaders, have shifted my focus toward advocating for another group, people like us living with MS. Helping others is truly my life purpose, and I believe Father Boyle is to thank. Taking the resiliency quiz also made me better appreciate the criticism I received when I didn't do well in every subject at school, and for the rules and structure I did have as a kid, even though it felt highly restrictive compared to what my peers had at the time. Many of my peers growing up had everything they wanted and needed, yet because I had to work hard for everything, I developed a strong work ethic, perhaps overly. And it also made me extremely grateful for my friends like Mandy, whom I've been besties with since fourth grade. Most of all, it made me proud of my optimism and my ability to always see the glass as half full and continually search for silver linings even after an MS diagnosis. By now, we all have a better understanding of how adverse childhood experiences and resiliency impact our physiology as well as how it illuminates the need for stronger boundaries. This is especially important if we've developed the disease to please, where we place others' needs and desires above our own, are highly empathetic, confrontation reluctant, are dealing with entitled people, and have altered physiology through adverse childhood experiences and or prolonged toxic stress exposure. The biggest takeaways I hope you leave with today. Our past can and does impact our future. So intentionally learning more about our past can help us change our future. We are the authors of the chapters to come. The choice is ours. We can certainly continue on the path we're on, but as Einstein said, we cannot do the same thing over and over again and expect different results. Change is hard. And that's exactly why I started this podcast and why the flock meeting space exists. So join us, won't you? We are a small group of really awesome people who meet together each week to share and learn and grow all in an effort to live better with MS. Following this and every podcast, I offer Zoom sessions for our Patreon listeners to discuss the episode's topic together. I hope you'll join us. Become a patron on patreon.com slash msflock for the Zoom session schedule and invitation links. Membership is only $1 a month to access these important flockings and to access more content and opportunities. And I should mention the $1 fee is because I am trying to finally learn to connect monetary value to my work, as well as cover podcast expenses, since disability retirement doesn't yield much income, am I right? Usually at this point of the episode, I tell you what to expect next week but I'm actually not 100% sure of that yet. I have several different episodes in the works. After this series of three heavy episodes, I may want to share something lighter. Dr. Peyrovi and I are working on another episode, and I have a few other interviews midstream as well. But I do know that soon, and maybe as early as next week, I will be doing an episode to focus on newly diagnosed folks. I've been noticing a huge uprise in newly diagnosed folks on my various social media networks. And it's not surprising since we know from experience how stress impacts MS. And 2020 has certainly provided its fair share, <clears throat> way more than its fair share of stressors. We were all newly diagnosed at one point in time, and those experiences are often challenging. So I'd like to have an episode that helps newly diagnosed folks find their way just a little easier than we did. 
in the spirit of collaboration, because I know that together everyone achieves more, I invite you to share your favorite insights with me about what you wish you had known or supports you wish you had had when you were first diagnosed. As always, also feel free to submit questions, comments, or future podcast topics or guest ideas to mymsflock at gmail.com. Flock members, I look forward to hearing your personal reflections on this episode this Saturday. And lastly, remember, as we travel through life with MS, we're certain to hit some turbulence. We'll get through it, especially if we're flying together, supporting one another. Thank you, as always, for listening. And until next time, be well.